Hello, it's Wednesday, July the 19th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. We're shaking things up at Area 45 this week. We took the podcast on the road to Hoover's Washington, D.C. office high atop the corner of 14th Street and New York Avenue which means that to the immediate west of us is the White House, and to the east, on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, Congress, scene of considerable drama these days. Here with us to explain what's happening on Capitol Hill and how a Republican Congress is adjusted to life with Donald Trump, Kevin Kosar. He's vice president of policy, the R Street Institute. Previously, he worked at the Congressional Research Service for more than a decade. Kevin, thanks for coming into the studio. Bill, thanks for having me. Hope the walk over here wasn't too terrible. It was balmy, but... uh... There have been worse days here. So one thing I've learned about you is that you are a fisherman, a fisherman of considerable knowledge of the Washington, D.C. waters. And this strikes me as interesting, Kevin, because I grew up here, and of my many childhood memories of Washington, fishing is not one of them. Well, yeah, and I don't think many people think about fishing when they are uh, when they come to Washington, D.C. or live here, but uh, we're literally penned in by water. We've got Rock Creek, we have Potomac, we have the Anacostia, and then if you're willing to get out into... Virginia, there's just tons of streams and creeks and all sorts of places, and they're just loaded with fish. Okay, I'm going to now go for the incredibly strained analogy here, but as we look at Congress, Kevin, let's put it into a fishing analogy, if we will. What's the problem? Are they using the wrong bait? Do they not know how to fish? Are they, are they casting their poles in the wrong waters? What What is going on here? And I say this because tomorrow's the six-month anniversary of Donald Trump taking office. And you look at the legislative record, and while, yes, Trump has actually signed more bills than Obama at this point, mostly ceremonial stuff, none of the big stuff, no Obamacare, no tax reform infrastructure, the, the, the shock and awe has not happened yet. So tell us what's going on here. Well, uh, if I'm going to use the, the fishing imagery, um, for one thing is this is not the House or Senate that we had 50 years ago. Um, there are no whales, uh, with the exception of the two leaders mm-hmm. of uh, the two chambers uh, and the two minority leaders of the chambers. Um, so that means there's a lot of small fish. And trying to get those small fish to school uh, can be extraordinarily difficult. Now, in the House, it can get done, um, not least because some of the rules um, and because a little more ideological cohesion there. But in the Senate, um, good luck. Um, The interests are very, very diverse, and the ability to get people to line up behind anything is extremely challenging. Okay, so you know Capitol Hill. You've worked on the Hill for a decade. You can explain government pretty well here. To those who are listening to this who don't really understand the Hill, uh, yet they see a situation like the Obamacare um, uh, repeal uh, package just fall apart. It falls apart because Republicans defect. It falls apart because uh, Leader McConnell can't get his votes together. They look at this and they're trying to figure out where to sage blame. Do you... Do you actually blame anyone here? Is this is this is there is this actually a situation in which you fault somebody, or is this just kind of the nature of the beast? And then it's a very closely divided Senate. Uh, I would say all the above. All the above. There's, uh, I mean, there's the age-old problem of when government creates something new, it's very very difficult for it to get rid of it or to even modify it in a significant way. That's because you have stakeholders and pluralist interests that cluster around and they want to keep the status quo. Um, And when you're talking about government creating something which is a benefit, that's going to have a tangible effect on people's day-to-day lives, it's even more difficult to get members of Congress to take it away. 
whether it's the right thing to do or not, it's still going to feel like taking something away and members are going to flinch about voting. Add to that the fact that we've got a really unusual situation in Congress over the last um, 20 years. Control of the two chambers has vacillated between Republicans and Democrats more rapidly than it had since post-Civil War era. Mm -hmm. So that means the short-term incentives of every legislator is to think, how do we win the chamber the next uh, election? And so that's what they do. They play for the next election, uh, so they line up along partisan lines. That's a great point. Uh, From 1954 to 1994, there was a consistency in American politics. The presidency would go back and forth. Republicans would have it. Democrats would have it. But Congress, Kevin, I think with the one stretch from, what, 1980 to 1986, when the Republicans had the Senate, it was Democratic in both chambers. And then along comes a guy named Newt Gingrich, and he changes things. And suddenly the Congress becomes Republican up until 2006, where the Democrats take it back. That holds until 2010, where the Republicans take the House back. You have a split Congress until 2014, so now the, now the Republicans have it back. And it could go the other direction in 2018, for all you know. Meanwhile, oddly enough, the presidency has been rather consistent. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama are three two-term presidents. The only other time that's happened in American history is presidents three, four, and five. So it seems we have relative consistency at one end of Pennsylvania Avenue with two-term presidents, but meanwhile, there's just turnover at the other end. Yeah, yeah. The the tumults of Congress are extraordinarily rapid, which kind of scrambles its ability to organize itself. I think that's one thing that, that folks probably don't realize, that You think about Congress and you think of it as an abstraction. Well, it's a bunch of people who should go there and vote on things and do the right right thing. It's way more complex animal than that. You're talking about a messy organization of 535 individuals split into two separate chambers on different electoral cycles. Um, There's so much going on. There's the basic issue of trust. I mean, you're making a complex policy uh, deal it's much easier to do that if you trust the person across the table from you. But if this person is brand new to you, you're going to be a little leery that they're going to stick it to you in some way. And right. so it's, a, it, it, it's tough. It's very tough. Okay, since we're a 45 podcast and we're going to talk about President 45, um, give us a sense of Trump's relationship with this Congress. So you've, you've seen presidents come and go in this town. You've seen this president come to Washington now. From your standpoint, how's he doing with Capitol Hill? Um, I don't think he's doing particularly well. Um, I think in part he was handicapped by being uh, new to politics, which meant he didn't have the deep long-term friendships. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't that he'd gone to school with people who are now head of the Appropriations Committee or some sort of relationships like that. He'd he'd fundraised for Democrats. Um, And so, you know, that trust problem, who is this person? How much uh, can I you know, support this person at my own political peril, you know, that sort of calculation that a legislator has to go through. Uh, It's unsurprising. Barack Obama was similarly handicapped. He had a little more of the political experience, but he famously followed the waters. He'd only been in for four years, so he had Washington relations, but he was not really a Senate player. But what about George W. Bush? Now, he came to Washington with a background in Texas politics. He maybe knew some people through his dad, but... Uh, you could say, well, here's a guy who didn't really have friends in Washington when he came in, but you know, he had a Republican Congress to work with. Yeah, he did. He did. And um, I think— uh, and That he, would have been about the time you were working at CRS, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, uh, he, he very early on 
you know, as the cliche is, ran a charm offensive. I mean, it was election-based charm offensive. I'm a uniter, not a divider. Uh, you know, I have Democrats on my staff and Democrats who are my best friend. I right. mean, there was a lot of stuff there that, that inspired confidence, not least the kind of and aura he gave off. Made it his mission to do No Child Left Behind in his first year, right? Right out of the gates, let's do right. No Child Left Behind. Let's have Teddy Kennedy and George Miller, Democrats, lions of their chambers. Invite the Kennedys yep. to movie night and watch the, watch the JFK mm-hmm. movie. It's it not a lot offensive. And, and 9-11, the unifying yeah. effects of that. Um, that can kind of make people drop their partisan guard. But here's the question, Kevin. Can Donald Trump pull this off given, A, that he's Donald Trump and people have very hard-set opinions about him, but also, B, this Congress becomes more and more polarized? So what I'm saying is even if Donald Trump wanted to go the No Child Left Behind thing and invite Democrats over for movies and dinners and charms them, do you think it would actually work? I honestly don't know. Right. It'd be fun to watch. We can see it'd that. be fun to watch, and it's something he's going to try. And I think, um, understandably, with two chances to use reconciliation to go big on policy, I think a lot of people in this town were revved up about it. But both of those have been mired down. Mm-hmm. If he manages to get something big across the line, suddenly he's going to look like more of a winner, a novice who suddenly pulled off something amazing in the first half year of his presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, or he might have to give up on those things and start playing small ball and start doing the hard work of coalition and trust building and hope that, you know, the midterm elections are not too uh, punishing. And what is your advice for the White House at this point? I, you know, I had a fascinating conversation with uh, think tanker Henry Olson in the last month. And one of the things he's done is look at the demography of Trump voters And he urged the president to tack his policy priorities much more towards those folks because if he doesn't, these are not steadfast, loyal Trump voters. They were protest voters who were sick of the other parties Mm -hmm. and what they were offering and thought this could be something different. And so figuring out what they need and want and what will affect them in a tangible way uh, immediately – not 10 years in the future, but something that they could feel immediately, like infrastructure or dealing with the opioid adep- epidemic. And I think that was pretty sound advice. That sounds good. So let's go back to when you worked on the Hill. What years were those? 2003 to 2014. Okay, so you came in with the Republican Congress and you left as a Republican Congress and coming back to power. So you lived through the all-Democratic Congress. So you, interesting time. So you were there for an all-Republican Congress. Then you saw the all-Democratic Congress. Then you saw the split Congress as well. Yes. Yeah, that was a, that was a lucky stretch of time to be able to, to witness all those things. Uh, a very simplified question, but what are really the big differences between then and now as you look at the Capitol Hill of 2017? Um, I think that we, in my early career at CRS, we still saw a – leadership-driven um, Congress that could still get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was not long after Tom DeLay. This was uh, you know, Denny Hastert. Um, Bill Frist was also um, able to pull some things off. Um, and since then, I think what we've seen in this week's health care bill collapse is a good example of it, is that a Congress that is leadership run 
that model just doesn't work anymore. Right. And by the, CRS, by the way, stands for Congressional Research Service, and CRS does what? A CRS is an agency in the Library of Congress. It's a nonpartisan agency. It's Congress's think tank. Uh, it helps train new members in the legislative process. It gives them advice on every issue under the sun that they care about, does reference work for them. Okay. So the first difference you see is leadership. Yeah. The leadership model doesn't work. You have a Congress that is too unruly to be run from the top. Mm -hmm. um, and the, it, it was kind of a trap. As the chambers vacillated from Republican to Democratic control, leaders had more of an incentive to try to suck more power up to their offices and try to treat each new Congress as a program that they would roll out. Be great PR, and this is how we're going to maintain the chamber or win election. But it never works. Inevitably, something happens. Whether it's a Planned Parenthood video that shocks the conscience of millions or something, this neat plan that we're going to do this, 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 and this, and people are going to think we're great and reelect us in even greater numbers as the majority, it doesn't work. Right. Well, one thing that struck me about the Obamacare debate, um, it's hard to remember a time when Republicans were in more of a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation. If you vote for Obamacare repeal, you're going to have a world of people come down in your head claiming that you're cutting out Medicaid and you're impoverishing people and you're condemning them to death. If you vote not to repeal, then what? You're alienating your base, maybe cutting yourself politically. Uh, so it was interesting to look at Republican after Republican out there who made very different calculations in part on their political situation. Dean Heller, for example, who was in a very contentious situation in Nevada, uh, was an outspoken opponent. Shelley Moore Caputo, uh, who uh, was, you know, elected by a huge margin in West Virginia. It's a pretty Republican state now, but she opposed it, I guess, because she has a very large, you know, poor population in her state. So you had these various members all splitting in their various ways, and it seemed that there was no way for the leader to bring them on board. And I don't know behind the scenes what he was trying, Kevin, in terms of coaxing or cajoling. I guess maybe you're telling me as the old LBJ model doesn't work where you cut off people's heat or air conditioning in the summertime. <laughs> uh, it just seems to be a different ballgame, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, the, the old sticks of old and the carrots of old are not there. I mean... I know a lot of people hated earmarks. I hated earmarks, bridges to nowhere. I was morally offended by these things. Um, but as a tool for getting people to take tough votes so that they have something they can go home with and brag about to kind of lessen the uh, peril, you know, the earmarks had some use to them, but they're, they're not around anymore. They might well not be coming back. And so, you know, how's leadership going to get people to vote against what they perceive as their own interests. Okay. Uh, answer me this. To the non-sophisticated Washington politics, they look at what's going on in this town and they see an Obamacare debate. And they see Republicans have had control of the House now for since, what, January of 2011. And they've had control of the Senate since January of 2015. But when it comes time to actually do a repeal bill, they don't seem to know what they're doing. And so to that outsider, he or she says, why weren't they ready to do this? Yeah, it's a, um, a public relations disaster, really, of Republicans' own making. I public mean, relations, Kevin, but also policy. And that the policy, mm -hmm. either, either they couldn't explain the policy properly, or the policy was just overall, all over the map in terms of if they wanted to repeal or not repeal. So it's just, it's just hard to figure how they could get in such a sideways position, having had all this time to figure out how to do this. 
Yeah, my my own sense is that there was a lot of energy and a, perhaps a consensus that when the Trump presidency began, there would be a repeal, not a replace. Replace would be something that came later. And as I understand it... That's where McConnell is headed now, by saying we'll repeal it and we'll replace it in two years, right? The White House said no. The White House said no to that. Instead, we want repeal and replace, for which the replace, that's the complex thing. Um, It's one thing to pass a repeal bill and say this Obamacare is dead, but actually it doesn't really die for another four or five years. You claim the headline, and then you can work out the policy implementation. Mm -hmm. Um, Suddenly the line got – the whole timeline got truncated, and they had to figure this out. And, you know, you create an entitlement – it's the truth about every entitlement. Good luck repealing it. Good luck changing any of it because somebody's going to scream and vote against you if you vote against it. Exactly. James Madison writing in the Federal paper, Federalist Papers, and I quote, in Republican government, the legislative authority ne- necessarily predominates. In Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. What would James Madison say looking at this situation right now? Uh, he would wonder if we still had a republic. Not not least uh, because uh, legislators have gotten in the peculiar habit of looking to presidents as the leaders on policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does the White House want? Well, we're ready to line up and push it over the line. Um, that would have been very bizarre and troubling to him. He also would have been shocked at the giganticism of government uh, and particularly the executive branch um, and terrified like, how can you have a republic uh, of, of by the people and all that when its chamber is so minuscule compared to what it's supposedly controlling? Okay. We're not assigning blame to anybody here, but just walk us through how this happened, how the executive branch, in essence, got on steroids, and how the legislature branch at the same time atrophied. When, how far do you take this back to? Oh, where to begin? Um, I think uh, certainly wars have historically played a role in the growth of government. Um, you know, War of eighteen twelve. You know, suddenly you need a lot of people to, to Ma- fight. You're going back to Ma- so you're making Madison part of the problem here. Yeah, although to his credit uh, and to the credit of uh, early presidents the kind of emergencies, you would meet them, and then you would staff down and shrink the government afterward. We hit the Civil War, and then we started creating new agencies that had a permanency to them. And then, of course, we get to the Progressive Era, um, and New Deal, and the national economic crisis that FDR seized upon. And it's an unfortunate thing, um, but we voters bear a lot of the blame. We are very happy to demand lower taxes and smaller government, but the moment government wants to take away something that they've been giving us for a long time, we squawk. FDR, by the way, 3,728 executive orders during his presidency, about 300 per year. Donald Trump's on a pace, Kevin, for about 90, I think, this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, FDR's output was... uh, astonishing and uh, you know it, ver- it verged on autocratic uh, right but let's look back at Congress now so 
you know, they're not a bunch of passive fools on Capitol Hill. They understand that they are losing power here. They're on the short end of these power struggles. What are they doing to change the situation? Surely they're not sitting up there thinking, we like the way things are right now. We like a president who does executive orders. We, we're very happy stewing on our situations and continuing resolutions for spending and being the weaker branch of government. What, how are they going to try to remedy this? You know, uh, how are they going to remedy that? Well, that's, that's, that's a very we good ask big, question. We ask big questions here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that um, it's been my observation that for um, – decades, there have been a significant number of people on Capitol Hill who take not a whole lot of pride in the institution of Congress itself, and they're more interested in getting the outcomes they want. Right. So if that means delegating authority to executive agencies um, and undermining the Constitution, their own legislative power, that's fine. That can actually square neatly with their electoral interests, mm-hmm. uh, which is a... Uh, democratic problem of sorts. Um, Now, as far as how things are to be reversed, um, I've put forth a number of ideas, and other people have put forth a number of ideas to try to take government off of the automatic spending and to try to kind of get people to have to fight over more scarce resources and to prioritize. Um, But so far, there haven't been many takers on the Hill. Okay. You have suggested some fixes. I stole these from a very good article that you wrote, a terrific essay you wrote for the Quarterly Journal National Affairs. Let's just, four of these caught my eye, Kevin, so let's go through these proposed fixes. Number one, easing or taking away term limits for committee chairs. Yeah, yeah. Um, the image of a chairman who's been atop his committee lording over it for 40 years is a nasty caricature, and it's been one that... Um, you, can first, say, you can say John Dingell if you want to. <laughs> first the, you know, first we, the we left... We can sit here all day and come up with a million John Dingell nicknames, Dirty Dingell and all the others, but he is... Yeah, John Dingell comes to mind, a whole list of Southern mm-hmm. Democratic chairs in the 60s and 70s and so forth, but, but oh, the yes. idea that term limits are... You know, are a problem yeah. for committee chairs. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's something that has surface level appeal. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, term limits. You know, throw these bums out. Uh, it plays well in in uh, Topeka and Akron, Ohio, and places like that. And understandably, but the problem is that if a person can only sit at the head of a committee for a short amount of time, they don't really have a lot of interest in learning the work and doing it very well because they're just going to move on anyway. Right. And so not surprisingly, they treat their chair as a stepping stone to a higher position. And so they, you know, run show, show hearings for the media and um, don't learn the policy area particularly well because they feel no sense of ownership. Um, and I think that is something that, that should be reversed. Okay. Point number two, reducing the number of committee uh, members' committee's assignments. You, yeah. you seem to suggest that members are stretched too thin. Yeah, members members have uh, an astonishing number of meetings that they're sh- supposed to show up for. And as anyone who's turned on C-SPAN and kind of watched the hearings, uh, if you're a glutton for punishment, you'll notice a lot of empty chairs on the dais. Right. That's because members are busy doing something else. Yet when it comes time for that committee to actually vote on a bill, they can show up having not been paying attention yeah, this is not the Nevada senator and in Godfather Two who's ducking out for obvious reason, but these are just guys. These are members who just have too many things going on at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And certainly, as a member of Congress, when you have to spend, you know, twenty to forty percent of your time uh, phoning people asking for donations Money. for re-election, right. it's a lot less time to be spending sitting on the dais 
you know, doing your job as an overseer. So what do you think the right balance is for work for these guys in terms of committee assignments? Would you limit it to what, two committees, three committees? I'm not, I'm not sure because I've also been wondering really um, whether there too many of the committee's jurisdictions are uh, confused, out of date, and should be rethought. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I did not promote in that piece is that I think Congress really should sh- sit down and put together a joint committee of House and Senate to look to reorganize itself. It's did, it did that in the 40s, uh, did that in the early 70s. Um, but it hasn't done that in a long time. So there's a lot of anachronisms that need ironed out, not least committee membership. Aging myself, I remember back in the 80s, there was a big fight on the Hill between, I think it was Henry Waxman and John Dingell, and it was over ultimately jurisdictions. And I think Waxman chaired, I'm going to have this wrong, uh, I think he chaired the Energy and Water Committee. And the idea is just, if you take the words energy and water, you can apply it to any and a million things under the sun. And so they just were sticking their nose everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they can be they can be very territorial, um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's the you know Department of Homeland Security is the classic example where it has to report to so many different committees. So everybody is in charge, but nobody's in charge. Okay. Third suggestion you made: increase congressional research analytical staff. Yeah, one of the stories that I've been trying to get out um, for the last few years is that Congress's uh, brain power and expertise has gone down over the last 40 years. And you think about the size of government. It's getting bigger, 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 more complex, more policies. Right. Executive branch gets larger. Congress, meanwhile, has cut committee staff, which is a source of expertise. It's also reduced the number of staff at my old agency, Congressional Research Service, mm-hmm. GAO, and it flat out abolished uh, in the 90s the Office of Technology Assessment, what just about, defunded it. What about personal staff? Personal staff has um, atrophied a little bit, but the big problem with personal staff is the pay. Right. Uh, inflation in this town is going up, up. Real estate in this town is exceedingly expensive. Um, when you look at what people get paid versus what they got paid in the same position 10 years ago, it's gone down significantly. Now, wasn't Ted Kennedy famous for paying uh, out of pocket for staff? He would literally pay for the best and brightest on his staff. Yeah, I had heard reports of that. I never... I never knew how true they were um, because it was a, there was the, always the self-reporting issue going on. Uh, well, there's certainly an urban legend around that he just he paid more out of his pocket to get staff on. So you would uh, increase pay for research. Oh, abs- absolutely. I mean, I quite frankly think that the more facts and the more analysis we have, kind of swamping Congress, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the nonpartisan agencies which, you know, they hire people based upon expertise. I was hired in a CRS uh, because I had a PhD. Um, And that's their job, to be apolitical and kind of bloodless and fact-based in in your work. More of that is needed, not least because the turnover in Congress. Everybody coming uh, is, everybody on the Hill is rather new. I think I looked a couple years ago, and it was 54% of of legislators had less than eight years of service. Right. And when you think about how complex the executive branch is, 
Is it any wonder nobody seems to know what's going on? Right. It's interesting. So I come from California, and California implemented uh, term limits on lawmakers in 1990. And what you found was it didn't take long before you had lawmakers with very little institutional knowledge, and they became wholly dependent upon staffers and then ultimately special interests to basically tell them how to act because they didn't know how the town worked. And so the system really kind of fell out of whack as a result of that. Yeah, and the, and the mention of special interests is an important one um, because if congressional staff are not being paid much, if there are not new positions being created for people to be congressional staff, mm-hmm. where are people going to get jobs? Well, the answer is, you know, in some cases they can go to think tanks, but those are not the big <laughs> bastions of employment. It's lobbyists right. and where they get paid a lot more. And if they have any smarts about them or experience in particular issues, um, they get paid very well. Right. Fourth suggestion you made, inspector generals. Yeah, inspector generals. Those are Congress's friends within executive agencies. Right. Um, they are people who can get their hands on documents and data. Uh, they're quasi-police officer-like, kind of police officer crossed with an accountant. Um, and they are people who can help tell Congress what's going on inside these agencies. And a lot of these guys are hamstrung. Their ability to get documents has been hamstrung. Um, their funding has been limited. Um, they've been forced to like justify their budgets through the head of the agency, the very mm-hmm. people they're supposed to investigate. Um, very problematic. Congress, to its credit, in December did pass a law that strengthened it was bipartisan, strengthened inspecting generals in a, in a few ways. So that, that was good. Okay, that's good. Uh, so here we are. Tomorrow's the six-month anniversary of Trump taking office. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to grade his performance. I don't care much for report cards, but let's take a different tack here, Kevin. Let's say they asked you to make some suggestions on how to work with Congress, how to deal with Congress, perhaps even work around Congress. What, what would you suggest? Well, I would suggest that first he keep um, the stream of competent nominees going towards the Senate. Um, it's been a very bad story for him, and it's been bad for government to have all these high-ranking um, positions in the executive branch, people that could help him do stuff, not taking their seats just because they weren't nominated. Right. Um, and the pace has picked up recently, but you got to keep that stream going. Um, And maybe if the Senate was not spending so much time um, chasing the white whale of the health care reform, it could spend a little more time (laughs) being able to... Chasing the white white whale of tax reform. (laughs) Getting the nominees nominees through. So I'd say that was it. And I would also think it would be very strategic to to find some sort of small ball things. He has gotten ceremonial bills and the like signed in, but there are other things out there that I'm sure he could find that he could get through with a few Democratic votes just to get some wins on the calendar. Tell me how he figures that out. It's, you know, we watch House of Cards and we watch bad old Aaron Sorkin movies and things like that, which tell us how Washington's supposed to work. But Mm -hmm. the reality of how Washington works, the president says, okay, by goodness, I have to get busy and do five things. Does he just write down five things he wants to do? Does he call in his staff and say, what are the five most doable things we get? Does he pick up the phone and call Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan? Does he reach out to a select Democrat? How does he actually make a decision as to what to go after? Well, yeah, I think first he sends out his his top folks to the Hill to huddle with Ryan and McConnell's people to see if they can come up with something 
right. that they can agree upon. Um, and if those, knock on wood, if those conversations go well, then you can start the process. Um, but the real trick will be the due, to do the due diligence so that you have the votes counted before you start crowing about it. Because if you don't, uh, it only increases the incentive for somebody to stick it to you. Okay, so this goes back to us talking about the charm offensive. Due diligence in this day and age of this very choppy, messy Congress is due diligence. Just simply courtship is due diligence. The bully pulpit is due diligence. Starting the conversation of a do-nothing Republican Congress, how does Trump get their attention and make them work? Um, I think it would be disastrous if the president decided to go to war on Congress. I know he's he's lashed out at his fellow Republicans on the Hill. His friendships are so thin there right. that to keep doing that, I think, ultimately can be self-defeating. You're, so you're realistically, the alternative is to have Nancy Pelosi anyway, so I just don't see how he can make Congress throw them under the bus, if you will. So I think you're right about that. But, mm-hmm. but again, how so how does he go about actually making this place work? Or is it up to Congress to decide to make Congress work? Well, it certainly it's up it's up to it's up to Congress, but he's got to set doable priorities and it, figuring out what those are and trying to find ones that at least can have Democrats come on. And when I say due diligence, I also mean making sure that those people really have to take that vote in your favor on the policy you want mm-hmm. uh, and that they're not at the last second going to back out right. um, or stick it to you. All right. So what does he got to tell you? Where, where would you go if you were him? Um, infrastructure? It, infrastructure is exceedingly tempting, but infrastructure is also very messy in the whole myth of shovel-ready products, uh, projects. I mean, it always takes longer than you imagine. And it's expensive. Yeah. And so figuring out ways, for example, to fund more, say, opioid treatment centers. Mm-hmm. Find me somebody on Capitol Hill is going to stand up and vote against that. Right. Everybody's going to vote for it. Um, Trump ran out on it, actually. Yeah. Ran up, ran up very hard in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, yes, it will create, um, you know, increased deficits, but he's not going to get punished for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be that would be a place to go. Um, and then I think if even if he does some sort of small bore mm-hmm. tax reform and uses the reconciliation process for that, um, I think that where you only need – a uh, little more than half the chamber of the Senate, then right. that would be a way to go. Scale back the ambition a little bit, get something over the line. Okay. And then Congress looking at itself, what do you think Mitch McConnell, what's going through his head right now? Uh, he must be exhausted. Um, and uh, I think he's probably looking over his shoulder and wondering uh, if long knives are starting to come out and if somebody might want to challenge him. I uh, I do not envy the man. Um and I think uh, if, you know, his, his incentives to some degree align with the president's where if uh, he wants to keep his position, then he's got he's to get some wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't have to be big. They just have to be something. Right. But isn't one of the takeaways from this, Kevin, that, you know, the concept that, what, 50 is the new 40, that, you know, <laughs> 50 and 51 is not really a working majority in Congress, that you have to have a larger cushion. What when the Democrats did Obamacare, they had, what, 59 seats in the Senate, didn't they? Yeah. You know, yeah, they had a much so stronger majority. They had members to give away. McConnell, you know, I'm not defending Mitch McConnell here necessarily, um, but 52 members. So mm-hmm. he had only two votes to give away. 
that's a very tough order, I think, for, to, to run a Senate in when it's that when it's that narrowly divided with a 52-48 split and these various Republicans going in their different directions. So, you know, I guess elections matter in that they've lost seats in 2016 in some respects. I, you look at New Hampshire, for example. Um, what did uh, you know? What was the margin in that race? Like 1,100 votes or something like that? Yeah. I don't know if that changes the outcome of this vote, but just mm-hmm. you know, those that 52 seat uh, majority is pretty thin right now, if you ask me. Oh, it's exceedingly thin, especially. I mean, people often knock the Republican Party as a you know the monolithic party of bankers. It's like no, there's a lot of diversity there, and the interest of a rural Republican uh, is going to be different from the interest of Republicans who are situated in you know, more yeah. suburban areas or urban areas and that sort of thing. And then you bring in you know the Tea Party and the Libertarian leaning mm-hmm. Republicans, and they have a very different outlook on things. And if the Democrats are going to essentially just vote and block. The math doesn't work so hot. Right. So what are Republicans thinking these days? Are Republicans worried about losing both chambers? It's hard to look at the Senate right now and see the Senate going Democratic unless something very strange happens. It's just it's a pretty good lineup for Republicans. Right. Uh, so are Republicans in the Senate, if not cocky, are they more confident than the House Republicans? Or are they all worried right now? Because Congress's numbers are pretty atrocious the last time I checked. Uh, I think they're, they're, they're worried. They're dismayed. Um, I think, <clears throat> I mean, when Donald Trump surprised everybody and won, um, Republicans suddenly had to go, well, I guess he's one of ours now, and we have to make something good out of this. And so far, they don't feel like they have been able to do that. And so they're flummoxed, they're frustrated, and they need to figure that out. So thank you for mentioning this, because um, you keep hearing this chorus of, of some from Republicans, I never quote it, but they say this nonetheless, that... We never thought the guy would actually win. Uh, I don't understand, Kevin, though, how in politics you can't walk around without a plan B in your pocket. <laughs> so um, is it feasible that Congress, that the Republicans in Congress were actually blindsided by this election, that they just never thought Trump would win, and so they just really didn't have a game plan? Um, there were there was some in Congress uh, who thought he was going to win, and they were the ones who came out and endorsed him early on, but a lot of people held back. Right. Um, and because, I mean, we were getting a lot of polling data also that was, you know, wow, this is very empirically rigorous stuff showing that Hillary, of course, was going to win. And, oh, my goodness, there's another Donald Trump scandal. And, yeah, I think people were genuinely surprised. Um, and trying to coalesce around a plan when the president himself um, often moved around on things that he was campaigning upon uh, just made it all the more challenging. Um, again, he was new to a lot of people on Capitol Hill, and they didn't know what he really cared about. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's approach this then as we would marriage counseling. That You have these, <laughs> this, had this couple which has a difficult relationship right now. You look at the two people in this relationship, Kevin, and tell me what the problem is with each person here. Oh dear, where to begin? Uh, well, I think um, I have heard from the Hill that they would greatly appreciate it if there was sort of less unnecessary drama from the White House. Mm -hmm. You know, um, whether it's the Russia thing, whether it's Jared or Ivanka or whatever might, you know, sort of stuff going on. It'd be nice if that, like, would go away. They they find that too much. the president, meanwhile, is probably feeling like uh, he 
trusted these old hands on the hill, these people who were supposed to know how to control their chambers and to get stuff done, right. and is probably baffled that why can't people just be lined up to vote? I mean, this is a guy who ran a corporation. He's used to you make a decision and things get done snappily. Um, and this isn't happening, and he's been ex- he's clearly exasperated. Um, but you know what might make it worse for him in this regard? He signed a lot of executive orders. Those happen fast. Neil Gorsuch happened pretty fast, mm-hmm. pretty smooth. So maybe from Trump's perspective, and again, I'm not taking Trump's position here, but maybe from Trump's perspective, he thinks, why can't it always be like this? Yeah, yeah. He did the, he did the executive uh, order on regulatory reform to impose regulatory budgeting regime, right. um, which, you know, the Hill had been working a long time on regulatory reform. And there were some bills that I think had a shot. And I think those folks were like, wait. We were going to put this in law. And then they thought, oh, wait a minute. This could actually be a good thing. Um, So it's entirely possible uh, that he will find things that are not upsetting to Republicans and start dropping executive orders on them. He got out of the gate very, very cleverly. I mean, it seemed like every other day when the presidency began, he was dropping executive orders, even if they were to some degree ceremonial. Right. But they showed somebody who was making a decision and making policy – Um, And that worked for him, and he might go back to that strategy. Yeah, but meanwhile, you have the legislative problem Mm -hmm. where legislative is not going, and he keeps wanting to talk about the big stuff too. So Mm -hmm. you're right. He's going to have to make a decision, I guess, in this next six-month segment about what exactly to aim for. Yeah, and and certainly if he does go the executive order route, um, he'd have to choose very carefully. Um, And Republicans are going to have to think about how they – deal with the fact that for a long time they've been complaining about executive overreach, governing without law, uh, imperial presidency, all that sort of stuff, which is real and which is a problem. Mm -hmm. But when somebody starts doing it and you like what they're doing, do you shut up or do you not show up? It's not a good position to be in. So this is the funny, uh, funny, haha, the oddness of this situation. Uh, You make the argument for an even stronger executive branch, but then wait a second, that's not historically what our government is. We're supposed to be a balanced government. So you say, okay, we need a more vigorous, reinvigorated legislative branch. Well, people don't trust Congress Mm -hmm. necessarily. And what president's going to abdicate power to Congress, if you will. So uh, just it's hard for me to see how exactly the situation gets rectified in the near term. Yeah, yeah, not least because... uh as Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton pointed out, the president inevitably has the first mover advantage. Correct. Um, and try to get a collective complex body to be able to respond to it and to push back. I think that's not some, that's something that Madison probably didn't really appreciate. Right. Um, and when there are national moments of crises, for example, 9-11, more power to the executive. Yeah, yeah. And there's good, there's good sociological research that while uh, people love – the kind of feeling of, yeah, it's government by the people. They're also very happy in many instances to just have quasi-autocratic leadership if they think it's going to fix things. Right. Um, and that's where you know a lot of people have been getting nervous and uh, of late, where there have been research showing that, you know, oddly enough, amongst millennials, who are supposed to be more liberal and of the people, they're kind of meh about, you know, Congress and uh, democracy generally. Um. Right. 
So let's say we're having this conversation on January the 20th of next year, the one-year mark of his presidency, and we're talking about Trump and his relationship with Congress. What, Kevin, do you think will be different by then? What will be different by then? Um, I think the trajectory of his presidency. That's the only thing I can think that will be different by then. We will either see somebody who's been able to turn things around and can probably do positive incremental reforms and improvements to the federal system. You know, maybe he'll get civil service reform or something like that across the line. Or we might basically be looking at somebody and saying, yeah, this is a failed presidency. This guy is stuck um, and it's not getting better. Um, and that's when we start talking about whether Republicans are going to right, lose more seats. Under, under the failed presidency scenario, voters will take it out on the Republicans in Congress. Yeah, yeah, which is not a phenomenon that, that happened quite so much 200 years ago, but the nationalization of media, the, uh, you, you, it's harder and harder for an individual to run as a local state-based right. candidate. So might be my biggest understatement of the day, but it would behoove Donald Trump and the Republican Congress to start working together. Oh, yes. Right now. <laughs> ASAP. You think that's possible? Absolutely. There's so many issues. There's so many things that they could tackle and that they could get through. It's just they're so, so anchored on health care and, and budget. Um, and if they can squeak through appropriations season, um, maybe they'll get the chance to, to do those other things. Okay, so final question for people uh, listening to this today. Give them a date when they should kind of tune back into the Trump-Congress dynamic. Is it is it a month from today's July the 19th? Is it a month from today? Is it two months today? Just Tell them when to come back and look at this. September is going to be interesting just because that's the end of the fiscal year, the expiration of appropriations. Um, that could go bad. We could end up with a government shutdown. Um, that's, that's, that's the first time to check back in and then uh, check back in in December because sometimes in late November, December, surprising legislative achievements occur. Right. And that could be a turning point. Okay, so check into September and see if Trump and Congress have steered their way through the through the budget crises, or if we've hit the mess of the shutdown, and then December, see what's actually under the Christmas tree in the way of packages. You bet. Very good. Kevin Kozar, great to have you in today. Bill, thanks so much. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Kevin Kosar is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Kevin R. Kosar. I got that right, didn't I? Yep. Yay. The R Street Institute is also on Twitter. Its Twitter handle is at RSI. Anything else I should plug while you're here? Um, other than to say that if folks uh, would stop by ledgebranch.com, which is the site that uh, we put together to try to, as we say, make Congress great again and check out what we're doing there. We're trying to actually convene bipartisan uh, group of folks on the Hill to figure out how to restore Congress to uh, its position in the constitutional system. Okay, great. When kids bring their, uh, when parents bring their kids to town to look at the monuments, they want to go fishing, where should they take them? Uh, a great place to fish, actually, is right in front of the Jefferson Memorial. There are immense catfish in the tidal basin. There's also bass and some bluegill and crappie, too. Maybe Trump should take Congress fishing and see what they come up with. I would love to help arrange a Trump congressional fishing effort. 
Sounds good to me. Kevin, great talking to you. Good talking to you. Thanks. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.